Clint Smith, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Your book, How the Word is Passed, just published. This is its third day in the world. This is its third day in the world. Third day, and I am very excited. I have been waiting for this book for a really long time. And I'm going to quote you for a second. So much of the story we tell about history is really the story that we tell about ourselves, about our mothers and our fathers and their mothers and their fathers, as far back as our lineages will take us. So you're telling an incredibly fundamental story about America. You're telling a story of us as Americans, um, a story of our mothers and our fathers and our lineages. So how did this book start for you? So this book started in May of 2017. Mm -hmm. When I watched the uh, Confederate statues, several Confederate statues in New Orleans, um, my hometown being taken down. So a statue of Robert E. Lee, Confederate general, P.G. Mm -hmm. Beauregard, Confederate general, Jefferson Davis, Confederate president, uh, mm -hmm. as well as some other symbols of white supremacy. And I was watching these statues come down in this place that was my home and thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. And what did it mean that on my way to school every day, I went down Robert E. Lee Boulevard. On the way to get to the grocery store, I went down Jefferson Davis Highway. I mean, that my middle school was named after uh, a leader of the Confederacy and that the street my parents live on is named after 150 enslaved people. That when I went to plantations growing up on field trips in elementary school, you would go on these plantation tours and nobody would even say the word slavery. And so having slavery be at once so present in my home, but also so unnamed in so many ways, um, and almost worse than being unnamed, it was erased and um, oversaturated by the iconography and symbols of the Confederacy. And so I started thinking about like how my own city reckoned with or failed to reckon with its own relationship to the history of slavery, and, and then kind of broadened that out and got really interested and almost obsessed, I'd say, in thinking about how this history of slavery was remembered in different places across the country and what shapes what that memory looks like in these various places. And so I end up in the book, you know, I went to dozens of places, mm -hmm. but ended up writing about eight of them in the book, including one abroad, and really just wanted to capture places that reflected the patchwork and plurality and heterogeneity of experiences that reflect the inconsistency of how slavery rem is remembered uh, here in the U.S. And I was having a version of this conversation with a friend actually just the other day, and she, like you, grew up in places where schools were named after Robert E. Lee and other people who owned enslaved people, and streets are called Confederate Way. Mm. Um, what does it mean to you as a writer and a researcher and a historian that we aren't telling these stories? I mean, I think part of the reason we don't tell this story is because people don't want to see this country for what it is and for what it has been. Because mm -hmm. if you are to accept the reality that this country was founded upon the principle um, of state-sanctioned efforts to uh, enslave millions of human beings, um, to commit genocide against millions of indigenous people, um, that multiple iterations of immigrant groups who came to this country experienced state-sanctioned yeah. uh, oppression um, when, when they arrived, then you have to accept that our current and contemporary political, social, and economic infrastructure is, is informed by that past and is shaped mm -hmm. by that past. And if you accept that our contemporary political, economic, and social infrastructure is shaped by that past, then it blows up the sort of narrative of America, which says that 
if you work hard, you can get anything you want, or the myth of meritocracy, mm-hmm. or the idea that the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is somehow because of the people in those communities and what they have or haven't done, rather than being reflective of what has been done to those communities mm-hmm. or, or, or failed to be done for those communities mm-hmm. generation after generation after generation. And so I think part of what a rigorous and deep engagement with the history of slavery does is it gives it gives us a, a deeper sense of clarity mm-hmm. about why the contemporary landscape of inequality looks the way that it does. And when I think about that, I think of this essay by James Baldwin, um, who in 1963 had the speech that he gave to a group of New York City educators called Talk to Teachers. And he published it as an essay, I believe, in 1964. And in it, he's he's talking to these groups, this group of educators, and he's saying the black child in America is told over and over and over again that they are criminal. But the role of the teacher, and he's saying teacher here literally, but also as a sort of metonym for the larger society, the role of the teacher is to help that child understand that they are not, in fact, criminal. But it is the society that created the conditions and the history that created the conditions that that child is forced to grow up in. And that is the, that is actually the criminal. And it's, it's a, a simple and intuitive framework, but it's an important shift from the way that so many people, especially so many young people, who, who grew up to be older people, um, it, that shapes how they understand themselves in relationship to the world. And I saw this firsthand as a high school English teacher, right? Mm-hmm. How so many of my young students had internalized the messages that this country told them about their sel- themselves and thus uh, were, were unable to recognize that so much of the reason their communities looked the way that they did or that they were coming from communities saturated with poverty and violence were because of a series of policy decisions that have been made by people over the course of of decades Mm -hmm. and not simply because of cultural pathologies or deficits or something inherent to them or the people they love. And, and, and I, so I say all that to say, I think that slavery is a a large part of that um, Mm -hmm. because it's something that actually wasn't that long ago. Um, and and I think the more we realize our sort of proximity to it, our temporal proximity and our physical proximity um, to the to the land upon which it uh, took place, then then we get a better and fuller and more honest sense of of why our country looks the way that it does today. And you make a really important point. There's you go to Blanchard Cemetery uh, in one of the chapters, and and one of the things that comes up in this chapter as you're talking to the docent at the chapel and then you go to this um, celebration, what's the word I want to describe what festival? It was a Sons of Confederate Veterans Memorial Day celebration. Memorial Day celebration, okay. But at one point you're referring to the United Daughters of the Confederacy and and how they wanted to rewrite the public narrative and create living monuments out of children. Mm. The idea being that they would go on and reinforce these systems that we have created. And so this is systems, but it's also people because people uphold systems. No, exactly. Uh, and, and for context for, for folks, the Blanford Cemetery mm-hmm. is in Petersburg, Virginia. Mm-hmm. It is a place where the remains of 30,000 Confederate mm-hmm. soldiers are buried, uh, making it one of the largest Confederate cemeteries in the country. And I traveled there uh, for the Sons of Confederate Veterans, as as we said, Memorial Day Mm -hmm. celebration, and was engaging in conversation with these reenactors and these Mm -hmm. neo-Confederates and these current members of the Sons of Confederate Veterans and United Daughters of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. And and was just really interested in how 
I was interested in what, what the contemporary manifestation of the lost cause looks like. Right. And and I think when I was there, I got a lot of clarity mm-hmm. because it became clear that for so many people, history is not about empirical evidence. Mm-hmm. It's not about primary source documents. It is right. not about historical fact. It is a story that they have been told. And it is a story that they tell. It is an heirloom. It is something that is shaped by uh, and shaped by and entangled in their love for certain individuals who told them certain stories that are that are not true. And so I think about one of the people I met there, a guy named Jeff, uh, and he was, you know, sort of he had his long ponytail and his long gray beard and aviator sunglasses and his sort of biker vest adorned with Confederate iconography mm-hmm. um, and symbolism all over it. And he was telling me about how he would come out to the cemetery when he was a kid with his grandfather and they would walk around and, and they would sit in this gazebo at, at dusk and, and they would watch the sunset and they would uh, watch as the deer would scamper through and around the tombstones. And his grandfather would share songs with him that his grandfather had sung to him. And he would share memories of the men who were buried in the cemetery um, that, and, and told him stories about the men who were buried in the cemetery who fought this war to you know, protect their families and protect their state and protect their values from um, this sort of uh, aggressive and un, un, uh, un, unmoraled North. And so Jeff grows up with this. Mm-hmm. And this is what shapes his understanding of the cemetery and its land. And, and almost most importantly, his, of himself, yes. right? And and so then what happens is Jeff, what Jeff loves to do now is he loves to take his granddaughters right. to that same cemetery and do the same thing with his granddaughters that his grandfather did to, did for him and tell the story about these men who were buried here and, and what they fought for and what they made. And, and it's not true. Right. And it's a lie. And it, this is how the story of the lost cause perpetuates itself, right? The story and the lost cause being this idea that slavery wasn't the central cause of the civil war. And even if it was like slavery wasn't actually that bad, it was a benevolent institution. It was as Senator John Calhoun from South Carolina would have said, it is a positive good for both black Mm -hmm. and white people alike. Or as the historian Ulrich B. Phillips says in the early 20th century, um, as a sort of leader of the sort of academic propaganda effort um, in the field of history on this front, that that slavery was a, a civilizing institution, that plantations were civilizing institutions um, that made uh, that meant that Black people were much better off here than they were in Africa. And one of the best things that ever happened to Black people is having been forced onto ships and brought um, brought to to the New World where, where they could be trained and turned into Christians, so on and so forth. And so that's what the lost cause is. And this is the message that is shared across generations through people like Jeff. And part of what I think about when I'm there is is what would it look like if Jeff made a decision to tell a different story, right? Mm-hmm. Like what if instead of telling the story that his grandfather told him to his granddaughters, he went around with his granddaughters to the cemetery and said, these are your ancestors and they fought a war for a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be defined by or tethered to their decisions. We can look at their decisions and name their decisions and mm-hmm. say that that is not who we are and then move forward and make a different set of decisions. But instead, what happens for so many is that they are unable to say such a thing because their their political sensibilities and their historical sensibilities are so deeply enmeshed and mm-hmm. entangled in 
their love for these people who told them these stories and their the nostalgia of these moments, like when Jeff is sitting in the gazebo with his grandfather. Yeah. And so if you're asking Jeff to accept that the things his grandfather told him were not true, then for somebody like Jeff, you are accepting them, you're asking them to, to call their grandfather a liar, mm-hmm. to call them to question Mm-hmm. so much of the what shaped how they were raised mm-hmm. um and that's a difficult thing for for people um and it's it's a thing that pe- uh, there are people who do it um but there are also millions who don't um and i think that those people are because they are given this false history over the course of many years mm-hmm. uh, and many generations go on to be people who vote for or are elected to positions um and enforce policy uh, and support policy that doesn't account for the centuries of harm that have been done um, in their name. And on the flip side of the people that you encountered at Blanford, there's Monticello. And Monticello is rewriting. I mean, they they seem to be really committed to rewriting the story. I mean, I know growing up, I was told Thomas Jefferson was a great man and here are all of his accomplishments and da da da. Mm-hmm. And then later it was here's his great love affair with mm-hmm. Sally Hemings, which She's a 14-year-old slave, enslaved. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's a whole different conversation. Yeah. But now we've got Monticello, we've got docents at Monticello saying, this is what reality is. Human beings, enslaved people. Yeah, I think Monticello is an interesting place because I think it is a, a place that is open to evolution. Um, in a place that is that responds to new information. Mm-hmm. Um, so Monticello, you know, for people who visited there 10, 20, 30 years ago, right. um, the experience, you know, I talked to a lot of folks who who visited, you know, in their own childhoods before. Mm-hmm. And I, the first time I ever visited was in 2018. Right. And their experience was very different than my own because mm-hmm. this was still at a time where when scholars were rejecting the idea that Jefferson had had any sort of relationship a sexual relationship with Sally Hemings. Right. This was at a time when there w- was still not a, a, a willingness to engage with Jefferson's, the totality of Jefferson's mm-hmm. slave trading um, uh, in, uh, history as an enslaver. And mm-hmm. I wanted to go to, to Monticello more broadly because I think that Monticello is a sort of, and Jefferson is like a microcosm of the story of America in the sense that like mm-hmm. America is this place that has provided unparalleled um, unimaginable, what would have been unfathomable opportunities for millions and millions of people across generations to accumulate wealth and upward mobility in ways that their their ancestors could have never could have never again imagined. Mm-hmm. And it is also a place that has created that opportunity for those millions of people at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people who have been intergenerationally subjected, uh, subjugated, and oppressed. Right. And the U.S. is both of those things. Mm-hmm. It is the story of people who have accumulated wealth in ways that their ancestors could have, could have never imagined. And it is the story of people um, whose necks have been stepped on in order for other people to create that wealth. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we think about America, we have to hold both of those realities at once. And I think Jefferson, similarly, is somebody who embodies and sort of personifies that that cognitive dissonance in the sense that he is a person who 
wrote one of the most important uh, documents in the history of the Western world, and is also someone who enslaved over 600 people over the course Mm -hmm. of his lifetime, including four of his children that he had with an enslaved woman that we mentioned, Sally Hemings. He is someone who wrote in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and wrote in Notes on the State of Virginia that Black people are inferior to whites in, quote, endowments of body and mind. And so I think when we think about Jefferson, you have to hold both of those realities. You have to hold the contradictions that he was in many ways a a brilliant man and he was also a deeply racist man. And that all of the things that made Jefferson, uh, you know, Jefferson was a man of many interests and and did many things, philosophy, science, um, uh, all all sorts of things. But his engagement in those things is only possible because of the hundreds and hundreds of enslaved people Mm-hmm. who did all the work that allowed him to sit around writing letters and thinking mm-hmm. thoughts and writing books all day. And so I went to Monticello because I wanted to understand how a place tells the full story of Jefferson mm-hmm. um, and how we don't even just center the story of Jeff of, of Monticello on Jefferson, but also recognize that in many ways, Monticello belongs to the enslaved people who live there mm-hmm. more than it does to him, right? Because it, it belongs to the Hemingses and the Fawcett's and the Grangers and so many of the, these other families who who quite literally were on that land for longer periods of time than Jefferson. Jefferson was in Paris and DC and Philadelphia and New York for extended periods of time when he was working for the government. Um, and these are the families who were always there and who were building family and building community. Um, and so they are, it, Monticello is a place that, you know, now they have a, a tour that they started in just the past few years mm-hmm. dedicated to the, to the Hemings family. Um, now they have a tour that, uh, that's been in place for a little bit now, dedicated singularly to the issue of slavery at Monticello. Um, and it's not to say that Monticello is perfect. There definitely are things that they can improve upon, as, as I think any plantation museum or any museum more generally could. But I do think, and I do find them to be uh, thoughtful and responsive to new information um, and and a, a people who recognize that there is a specific and unique responsibility that a plantation, and not just any plantation, a plantation by one of the most formative characters in the history of our country, um, there's a, a certain responsibility they have to tell the story um, in its totality mm-hmm. um, and to make sure that they are centering uh, people who, the people who made Jefferson's life possible uh, and not just Jefferson. Um, David Thorson, who's one of the guides that you met, at Monticello has a great line about history. He says, I think that history is the story of the past using all the available facts and that nostalgia is a fantasy about the past using no facts. And somewhere in between is memory, which is kind of this blend of history and a little bit of emotion. I mean, history is kind of about what you need to know, but nostalgia is what you want to hear. Mm. And I grew up in Massachusetts. So I grew up knowing about the 54th Regiment and I grew up knowing about abolitionists and you know, on Nantucket and, and mm-hmm. all those things. I also grew up in the shadow of the busing crisis. I grew up mm-hmm. in the shadow of J. Anthony Lucas's common ground. Boston is notorious for having poor relations of every possible kind. Um, mm-hmm. I do believe it's probably getting somewhat better. It certainly isn't the 70s and 80s anymore or even the 90s. I mean, Boston was, I was never given the full story. I had to chase of information. And, and there are moments where you talk about, you know, Frederick Douglass was a singular human being. We are doing damage to ourselves by only talking about the people who are the extraordinary examples of whatever the situation. We've lost 
all of these stories because we didn't value the everyday. And you talk at one point too, you're talking about the Federal Writers Project and how as a source, it's not perfect because people were tempering how they interacted with their interviewers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, New York was the second biggest slave market behind Charleston mm-hmm. in the 1700s. I can guarantee you most New Yorkers do not know that. And mm-hmm. the ones that do try not to think. So we tell these stories about the burden of the South and, and, and that's not to diminish the actual facts of the situation, but we can't say New York and points North mm. have clean hands or New Jersey and points North have clean hands either. So how do we change those narratives? How do we fill in those gaps when we are in fact missing some primary sources? Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's so important. So many of the things you said there are so important. So, uh, you know, on the New York front, as you said, it, it was the second largest slave port in the country after Charleston for an extended period of time. It's a place that was the financial capital of the country and whose uh, financial infrastructure made possible the expansion and and uh, perpetuation of, of slavery in the South where these enslavers had financial and economic relationships mm-hmm. to the North. But also... There were enslaved people in New York, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think sometimes people are like, oh, well, you know, New York financed slavery and that's not great. But like, they weren't having, they didn't have slaves themselves. They 100% had enslaved people themselves, right? And um, they engaged in the process of gradual emancipation early, before, prior to the Civil War. But that in no way absolves them of uh, of having had slavery uh present on that land um you know through the british through the uh the dutch uh and and the british um both and so and also you know uh on the eve of secession the mayor of new york city fernando wood mm-hmm. was trying to get the city to secede from the union because new york's relationship financially and and in many ways politically for so many mm-hmm. of them was so deeply entangled and invested in the, the states that were seceding from the union, South Carolina and the like. And so, you know, I remember when I came across that piece of information, I was like, New York City tried to secede from the union? Like, I mean, it runs counter to the entire narrative of cosmopolitanism mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that you are, that we're inundated with growing up where, you know, we are made to feel as if the Statue of Liberty has always been there, welcoming immigrants of every kind to to this city and that it is the bastion of opportunity and 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 uh multiculturalism but the, even the statue of liberty itself was originally conceived as a statue that was meant to honor a- the abolition of slavery at the end of the civil war and mm-hmm. that meaning has been erased over time mm-hmm. um as well it even physically moved the the broken shackles that lady mm-hmm. liberty was at one point holding in the de- conception of the design from her hands to like barely visible below beneath the robe mm-hmm. under and mm-hmm. by her feet in a way that you can't even see it unless you're uh you know looking from an aerial view in a helicopter or mm-hmm. or plane um and so you know the statue of liberty is in some ways you know it it is in some ways a microcosm of how we tell the story of slavery in this country and in the north right where we have like literally hidden it in places that we can't see it um even though it is deeply present there. And I think, you know, the question of how do we fill those gaps in, I mean, one of the people that I write about in the book is a woman, Damaris Obi, mm-hmm. and a uh, brilliant um, artist, educator, public historian, um, who leads these walking tours around New York City, yeah. focused on the history of slavery and the Underground Railroad. Uh, and, and 
doesn't hold back. I mean, begins the tour by saying like, look, some of you are going to be confronted with information that is going to be deeply unsettling and make you uncomfortable. And I need you to lean into that. Um, and, and she, one thing that she told me afterwards, she was just like, our, our understanding of slavery is so limited in this country that you would, she was like, you would be shocked at how many people come on, uh, this tour mm-hmm. who are American. I mean, it has a lot of international visitors, but also who are American who think that the underground railroad was a real railroad, right? She was like, that's, that is, I've experienced people like that every tour. Yep. And so there's this balance, I think, that these public historians like Tamaris have to strike where you at once need to make sure you maintain uh, a sort of rigor um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with the, and, and don't hold back in sharing information that is reflective of, of the history of this country, mm-hmm. but also a, a sort of generosity that meets people where they are and right. recognizes that, that there are a lot of people like the people I met at Monticello, Donna and Grace, who came, you know, came from Vermont on a, on a pilgrimage to see Jefferson's home, right. but had no idea that Jefferson owned human beings, had no idea that, Je- that Monticello was a plantation. In the same way that people in New York come on a tour of uh, a walking tour of the Underground Railroad, and they're like, "Where's the train?" You know, mm-hmm. like, "Where's the, the and and these are like this that is reflective of how millions and millions of people across this country think about and and understand or, or rather misunderstand the history of slavery. And so I I think that um, it demands accountability, and it also rec- demands a. Uh, uh, meeting people where they are and recognizing mm-hmm. that so many people have failed to be taught about this in any sort of way that gives them any semblance of understanding of, of the relationship that slavery has to this country. The Whitney plantation is one of the places you write about and they're doing an amazing job mm. um, changing the way the narrative is told, at least close to new Orleans. And I have to say, I have to give, um, is it John Cummings? It's John Cummings, yes. Mm-hmm. He said he'd originally had different plans for the plantation. And then he went through the records of the plantation and he saw an enslaved woman identified as a good breeder. Mm. And he said, I can't. I will mm. not do what I was planning to do. We have to tell the truth. Mm. And, and I respect that quite a lot. And one of the things, though, that the Whitney seems to have really been able to hone in on as well is children. Mm-hmm. And and you do mention this also, I should say, in the New York chapter, you know, when the African burial ground is found, it turns out that half of the bones there are children under the age of 12. Mm-hmm. The Whitney Plantation, again, they have the remains of 2,200 uh, 2, children on the property, and they are trying to get people to see this in a way that they have not previously been shown slavery. Yeah, the Whitney is... Is so fascinating because it is uh, the only plantation in the in Louisiana and one of the only plantations in the country that is, uh, as, as you allude to, dedicated to telling the story of slavery from the perspective of the enslaved. Mm-hmm. And it is surrounded by what is a sort of constellation of plantations mm-hmm. where people continue to hold weddings, where people you know have the the best day of their lives, so are, are trying to celebrate the best day of their lives one of the most joyous days of their lives 
in the home of a former enslaver where, you know, I've talked to wedding planners who said that uh, people will use the former slave cabins as bridal suites um, for these events. And so the Whitney is a place that fundamentally rejects the idea that a plantation can be understood as anything other than an intergenerational site of torture, right? Mm -hmm. And, and that you understand it structurally in that way. And then also understand that the people who were the victims of that torture were human beings mm-hmm. who who were working to create a, a life for themselves and and some sense of purpose and meaning and value in the face of what are just unfathomable unimaginable circumstances um and and to your previous point one of the things that they they do so well, I think, is utilize the narratives of the Federal Writers Project, which is, uh, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, a New Deal era initiative um, that happened in the late 1930s, in which over 2,300 um, formerly enslaved people were interviewed. And so these were people who were children during the end of uh, slavery and who were uh, elderly um, moving into the early 20th century. And and they had, and they use these narratives throughout the museum um, and throughout the plantation mm-hmm. to help us understand that the stories of you know that we the, that we hear most about slavery, like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and Harry Beecher Stowe, Alada Equiano, that those stories are important and they are important to engage with, and they are uh, central to helping us develop an understanding of what slavery was. But those are also people whose experiences are not reflective of the vast majority of enslaved people. Frederick Douglass is not just like an exceptional enslaved person. This is like an exceptional human being. Like Mm -hmm. they don't make human beings like that. Mm -hmm. Like they don't make human beings like Harriet Tubman all the time. You know, like that's these are like exceptional, exceptional, Mm -hmm. almost Mm -hmm. otherworldly people. And so the the stories that we get from folks like them should should be engaged with, but should not be understood as being um again reflective of what most enslaved people experience because if if that's the case then what happens is what happened to me when i was a kid where like the only thing i read about is you know frederick Douglass and harry tubman and i'm like well why didn't all slaves run away like well why didn't you know they they ran away like why and it it you know it, I, i'm filled with a sort of crippling shame around that now but i think that that's the sentiment that a lot of people, not even just children, but like a lot of people have, because those are the only stories we get. And if we don't get a fuller, more robust set of stories, um, then we don't understand the extent to which slavery was a uh, a system that existed for over 250 years that impacted millions of people in millions of different ways, right? And it depended on so many factors, where, where you were, what period of time it was, and just like who you were as a person, the same way that like all Black people are different today and share different social, political, ethical, philosophical sensibilities. Mm-hmm. It was the same thing with the millions of enslaved people back then. Um, and I think to the extent that we can get their stories through things like the Federal Writers Project or many of the narratives that were collected through historically Black colleges and universities and those students in the early 20th century, um, I think they they are helpful because they give a, give us a more complete picture of, of what slavery was um, and allow us to to not fall into the trap of thinking that every enslaved person, um, if they didn't do, make the same decisions as Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, 
somehow was was uh, deciding, making a decision uh, to stay enslaved, which I think is is one of the most sort of insidious logical conclusions of uh, such a project. That, and I think anything we can do as a culture and as a society to take respectability politics out of the conversation, mm. I think that false morality that we ascribed. Um, and continue to ascribe to systems and situations are continuing to do significant damage. You go to Angola State Prison in this book, and Angola has a gift shop. Hmm. Angola has a rodeo. Angola has a wall where there are stills from all of the movies that have been shot there. Angola has also has one of the largest death row populations in the country. And in fact, at one point, had the machinists in their shop building the bed that they used to administer the death penalty. The men there work for seven cents an hour. How do we end up with a place like Angola? How do you reform a place like Angola? How do you change the stories? Angola has a gift shop. Yeah, it is. Uh, I could have written an entire book about mm-hmm. uh about just Angola and my experience mm-hmm. there. Uh, so Angola is, as you mentioned, um, a prison. It is the largest maximum security prison in the country. Mm-hmm. It is 18,000 acres wide, bigger than the island of Manhattan. It is a place where 75% of the people held there are black men. Over 70% of them are serving life sentences. And it is built on a former plantation. And what I tell folks is that if you were to go to Germany and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany, built on top of a former concentration camp in which the people held there were disproportionately Jewish, mm-hmm. that place would be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. And rightfully so. It would be abhorrent. It would be disgusting. We would never allow a place like that to exist because it would run counter to all of our moral and ethical sensibilities. And yet here in the U.S., we have the largest maximum security prison in the country. Mm-hmm where the vast majority of people held there are Black men serving life sentences who go out and work in fields of what was once a plantation for virtually no pay, while someone watches over them on horseback with a gun over their shoulder. And so part of what I'm thinking about when I go to a place like Angola is is what are the ways that the history of white supremacy not only enacts physical violence against people's bodies, Mm -hmm. but also collectively numbs us to certain types of violences that in another global context would be wildly unacceptable. And and Mm -hmm. to your other point that like, not only does this place not address its relationship to the history of slavery, like, you know, I went on this tour and they didn't talk about it and I brought it up and they were like, yeah, some bad stuff happened here, but we don't think we can't, you know, we can't change that. We just got to move forward. Um, And that sort of like, we can't change that ethos was like sort of filled the entire space Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. because it was an effort to sort of sidestep and, and ignore that part of their history. So it's not only that, but that this place has a museum mm-hmm. that doesn't mention slavery at all. And connected to that museum is a gift shop where you have, uh, that sells shot glasses, that sells, uh, you know, and then this gift shop is still online until, you know, maybe they'll hear enough of these interviews and then they'll like, you take it down. But uh, that has a gift shop uh, with uh, shot glasses and coffee mugs and baseball caps and uh, sweatshirts and and one of the things that I saw when I was there was a coffee mug that had uh, the silhouette of a watchtower on it. And mm-hmm. you could see the sort of small silhouette of a guard with a gun standing at the top of that watchtower. And above and below the silhouette on this coffee mug, it said Angola 
a gated community. And so it's not only that the that this place doesn't address its relationship to this history, but it is almost making a mockery of mm-hmm. and belittling belittling the experience of people who continue of thousands of people who continue to be held in that prison. You know, places like in Auschwitz and some of these other camps in uh, or former camps in Germany. You know, they have restaurants and gift shops and museums, but you know, one they I think are tastefully done, and two are directly acknowledging what happened there and three Mm -hmm. are not places where people continue to be held right Right. like there are thousands of people who are still there and you have a coffee shop or a a coffee mug Mm -hmm. that that is quite literally making a joke right about what they are experiencing and so angola is um is a strange and chilling and haunting place um that that very much in which the landscape of what is transpiring there is is eerily reminiscent of uh, of the history of of slavery, and that's, and that's not to say you know it is slavery because I think slavery and mass incarceration are phenomenologically distinct mm-hmm. entities and should be interrogated as such. But it is to say to you know uh, to evoke the scholar uh, or invoke the scholar Cydia uh, Hartman um, that this that our prisons are shaped by the afterlife of slavery. Right mm-hmm. where like you can't look can't you can't look at Angola or Parchment Prison in Mississippi and not see the connection to that history because um, it's all over the place. Is there any hope that we can fix this? I I think so. I mean, I think that you know Angola is a. It is a safer place. I mean, again, this is all relative, you know, so it is a safer place than it once was. It is a place where the incarcerated people there have more, uh, you know, I put opportunity in air quotes, but like more opportunity uh, to get uh, some semblance of education or participate Mm -hmm. in programming than they once did. That doesn't make it a good place, Um, but it is a, I think it would be, uh, I'd be remiss if I said like it, you know, try to suggest that what it is now is the same as what it was in 1890. And that's not the case. I think there are lots of people like Norris Henderson, um, Mm -hmm. who is one of the formerly incarcerated folks I spend time with in that Mm -hmm. chapter and and who is with me on this tour. He was incarcerated in Angola for for almost 30 years, Mm -hmm. who are doing important, important, important work, um, both in in prisons and outside of prisons um, to reshape what uh, our country's relationship to the carceral state looks like. And so Norris is one of the people who led the uh, ballot initiative a few years ago that made it so that Louisiana no longer used non-unanimous juries to convict people of crimes. We were one of the only two states in the country, uh, us and Oregon, um, in which you could have a non-unanimous jury and convict someone of a crime. And I asked Norris, I was like, well, how many people here are were convicted of non-unanimous juries. And he's like, Clint, that's an important question, but you can't even understand the impact of non-unanimous juries because um, there are so many people in here who took plea deals because the prosecutor would come in and be like, I don't even have to get the whole jury to say you did it. I just have to get 10 out of 12, you know? Um, and that would shape somebody's decision about whether or not they go to trial or not. And so 
And he worked alongside some other, you know, advocates and formerly incarcerated people who were leading this work um, to to get rid of that. And that is that is meaningful and that is progress and that is important. Um, there is still a long, long way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our prisons are the, the social the current social function of prison is to take people away from society for as long as possible and, and render them caricatures or invisible um, mm-hmm. so that we don't think about them. And to the extent that we do think about them, we think about them as, as people who are um, not fully human or people who are uh, morally uh, ex- uh, empty uh, or people who are singularly responsible for the decisions that they made to, mm-hmm. to end up in prison. Um and we know that's not the case. We know that from history. We know that from sociology that we can't disentangle the fact that the vast majority of people in prison are people who grew up in poverty and that the poverty in the communities they grew up in are the result of state-sanctioned decisions that had nothing to do with them. Um, so, you know, people have agency and free will and can make their own decisions, but we have to understand those decisions in the context from which they are emerging. I remember hearing about Juneteenth when I was an adolescent in Massachusetts, but it wasn't a big thing and not a lot of people knew about it. And I didn't actually know the roots were in Texas Hmm. um, until a few years ago. And and you talk about how the community approaches Juneteenth as an American moment and not just as a black American moment. And can we just talk about Galveston for a second? Yeah. So I went to Galveston. Um, Interestingly enough, I went there uh, just a few weeks after I spent time with the Sons Confederate veterans at Blanford. And so it was a, there was a lot of whiplash, uh, to say the least, in from going, going from a place that was lifting up and celebrating the Confederacy um, to a place where there were union reenactors mm-hmm. and uh, Black people dressed in union garb, uh, in way at, whose work was dedicated to celebrating uh, this profound moment in American history uh, mm-hmm. that has come to mark in many ways the end end of slavery, right? You know, it June the fact that Juneteenth is not a national holiday, I think, is is a profound moral failure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it certainly has become more popular than and that it than it has ever been. And I would not be surprised if in the future uh it does become a national holiday. Mm-hmm. But it is a state holiday in Texas mm-hmm. um, and was founded as such by a guy named Al Edwards. Uh, about 40 years ago. And I was there at the Al Edwards annual prayer breakfast. Um, and it was this really remarkable moment um, because I was there on the island, on the land where in 1865, two months after General Lee had surrendered at Appomattox and more than two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, that enslaved people in Texas, the two hundred fifty and thousand, the two hundred fifty thousand enslaved people in Texas, were finally told that they were free, uh, and this was through um, General Order Number Three given by Union General um, Granger, and they do this process where they sort of reenact uh, General Granger making this announcement in in the building uh, where the sort of myth around Juneteenth was that he made it from the balcony. On, on a place called the Ashton Villa. And so we were inside Ashton Villa mm-hmm. and it's surrounded by these members of the community, many of whom are the descendants of people who were enslaved in and around Galveston. And there was one particular moment where we all stood up and started singing the Black National Anthem. And, uh, you know, this is a song that 
I have heard in you know thousands of different ways throughout my my entire life. But hearing lift every voice and sing, and watching the way that people's faces shifted, watching the way their mouths moved, watching how the lyrics of, of this song that is born of so much struggle and grief and mourning and hope was not an abstraction to them. It was it was literal. It was it was embedded in their memories of their ancestors of the of their great grandfathers and great grandmothers it was unlike anything i'd ever experienced before um i think that you the entire room you know engaged in this this chorus of memory is mm-hmm. is what it is um and and it was so important i think for me to to be there and i think in the book to highlight a place not that you know that is thinking about memory in a way that is centered on joy in a way that is centered on remembering you know both mourning the fact that their ancestors had had their freedom delayed by people by enslavers who attempted to prevent them from knowing that they were in fact already free and so to be sure mourning that but also celebrating mm. the end of one of the worst things that this country has ever done. Mm-hmm. And not only celebrating the end of it, but celebrating the millions of people across centuries mm-hmm. who worked to make that moment possible. Because the va- enslaved people were fighting to end slavery from the moment enslaved people were brought to these shores. And so that means the vast majority of people who fought to end slavery never got to see freedom themselves. But the work that they did made freedom possible for all those people who experience, who began to experience it at the end of the Civil War. And, and that sentiment uh, and that sense of, of the lineage that we are a part of, of people who, who fought for things that they knew they might never see but fought for it anyway, mm-hmm. um, was so present in that space. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it will stay with me for a long time. And it's one of the better pieces of reckoning that we have in America. I mean, it is, mm. it is an amazing moment. Um, but you talk about reckoning a lot in the final chapter. You're in Senegal, which was a point of sale for many enslaved people before they came to the United States. And one of the questions you wrestle with in this, in this chapter is what does reckoning look like? And, and I ask this too, as someone who is Japanese American, I am fully aware of what Japan did in Korea and Nanjing and Manchukuo and Taiwan and I and obviously the United States. And that's a legacy I live with. Hmm. So how do we live with the legacy of what came before us? So, I mean, I, it makes me think of Yajesi's novel Homegoing hmm. and, and the opening chapter, which is it will remarkable. Be, it is remarkable, but it is painful, and it is exactly what literature is supposed to do. Yeah. Um, but the idea that you could turn around and sell someone from your own community, and then it really does come back. I mean, I remember as a kid in Massachusetts being taught that the molasses trade 
was all about molasses and sugar. Mm. We exchanged molasses for enslaved people in the Caribbean, mm. but it was taught as the molasses trade. Right. So how do we as a culture, and I mean a world culture, how do we come to terms with what we have done and how we teach these lessons? I think we have to engage with this history honestly. Mm-hmm. I think we have to uh, absolutely lean into and recognize the complexity uh, and often the contradictions of our history, mm-hmm. um, while at the same time being clear about uh, things that were were not actually morally complex, right? Like, so there, I think there's a distinction there where slavery is not a morally complex issue. Mm-hmm. It, there is a it, there is a right and there is a wrong. Indigenous genocide is not a morally complex issue. There's a right and there is a wrong, such is the case for so many things. But I think we can recognize the complexity that exists within the history. So an example I think of is abolition. Mm -hmm. I was taught that abolitionists were, I was taught about abolition in a very binary sort of way, right? Like Mm -hmm. abolitionists were good and the enslavers were bad. Um, and I was like, oh, and then that what that happens is that makes everybody think that they would have been an abolitionist if they were growing up in the mid-19th century. They're like, oh, I would have been, I'd have been right there with Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. And I would, you know, I'd have been on the Underground Railroad and this and that. You know, you know, as a side note, I always tell people that like who you are now is who you would have been then. Mm-hmm. What you do now is what mm-hmm. you would have done mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. But in the context of abolition, part of what you realize when you get older and 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 engage with history more. Uh, in a more nuanced way is that you recognize that like abolition wasn't one thing, right? right? That there were lots of people who called themselves abolitionists who had very different conceptions of what should be done to, with, or for black people. Right. So you had somebody like William Lloyd Garrison. Um, you had somebody like Frederick Douglass. You had somebody like Harry Tubman. You had somebody like Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. uh, who was like, I think slavery is wrong. But I don't think that white people should have to live next to black people and we should uh, send them to Liberia or to Haiti or to South America. And, and you know, you caveat that by saying Je- uh, Lincoln's views on black people and slavery continue to evolve and were evolving throughout the Civil War. And, you know, and he was shot and killed before they could evolve any further. So we don't really know, um, as the historian Eric Foner would say, we don't know where he would have ended up. But it is true that, you know, when he was in his Lincoln-Douglas debates, he was saying that, like, Black people were not equal to white people. And uh, and even though slavery should end, that does not necessarily mean I am for the equal rights of Black people. And I, and Lincoln was not unique in that. I think that's a, mm-hmm. a position that many people held. But I bring, up, I bring that up because I think that it is a helpful framework to understand that, like, some things, when we look back historically, we want to make Black and white when they're actually filled with gray. Yep. And part of what we try to do when we're teaching this history is make everything, create a shorthand or overly simplify everything when we actually should lean into the complexity, lean into the contradictions and complexity of a Lincoln, lean into the contradictions and complexity of a Jefferson, lean into the contradictions and complexity of, of Africans trading other Africans into bondage, right? That like, Let's not pretend that that's something that didn't happen, but let's also be honest about how 
you know, the idea that like all an African is trading his brother into bondage is, is a Western imposed construction because they didn't see each other as brothers necessarily, right? They, they were different cultures and different ethnic groups and different tribes in the same way that like nobody looks at, you know, wars between uh, Britain and France and and was like, look at those white brothers fighting against one another and like mm-hmm. killing each other and chopping each other's heads off because that is not how we have socially constructed our notion of whiteness in ways that we have socially constructed our notions of of blackness. So so I say that because that was that is a reality. And most Africans had no conception that they were selling people into intergenerational chattel slavery, which right. wasn't something that existed in Africa. Um, and it's very different than having a prisoner of war that you, um, or, or somebody who, you know, was, was imprisoned in your community, which isn't to say that, that it is good to trade that person for goods, but it is to say that it is different than the idea that your child is an inherent, is inherently, uh, made into a slave, um, because, uh, of the status of their mother. Um, and that is like a historically unique thing that is in so many ways unique to um, the experience of slavery in the New World and the Americas. Um, so lean into complexity um, and and don't run away from it uh, because we're a complex, contradictory, messy country and, and our history is exactly the same. That seems like a really excellent moment to end the show. But can I ask you what you've been reading? <laughs> yeah. But seriously, because you're also a poet. Yep. So what else? Who else have you been reading? And and there's uh, there was so much good publishing on June first. It was. Oh, wild. I mean, even just June first, I was like, June first itself was bananas. I mean, it's just just the books published on that day. I mean, Carol Anderson the second, mm-hmm. uh, Ashley Ford. Uh, somebody's daughter, Ocean Vong's paperback, yep. which was like, I mean, that joint was, I have no words. I mean, that, that book helped me, like gave me a different understanding of what a novel could be. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I don't have enough good words to, to, to give that book. Um, Zakia's book, the other black girl, Casey Lehman's reissue long mm-hmm. division. I mean, it's so wow. good. It's, yeah. it's, it's, so it's incredible. And so that's all. That was all just <laughs> 48 hours ago. That was Tuesday. <laughs> what have I been reading? I've been reading. So I just read John Green's uh, The Anthropocene Reviewed, okay. um, which was mm-hmm. fantastic. And like John is John is a friend and I, I host Crash Course Black American History. Um, which is fantastic. And, I will totally give that a shout out. It is great. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been fun. Um, I've, I've enjoyed sort of. Uh, the process of putting the scripts together and, and mm-hmm. it's funny to see like an animated version of yourself. I can um, imagine. <laughs> yeah. I just read The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Tisha Filiaw. Love. And love. Oh love man. That book so much. Talk about a great short story collection. Mm-hmm. I, I think I just finished this book literally like yet yeah, last night. Um it's been uh I've I've been listening to it actually mm-hmm. and the, the audiobook I can't remember the narrator's name but like she does such an incredible job. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. and and I I just felt like I was there with these I mean the women and the stories mm-hmm. and the ways they overlap but were also so distinct and just mm-hmm. so and their voices were so so rich like the yeah. stories were i mean i was just so invested in in all of them and i was like i got so invested in you in just 30 minutes and now you're gone <laughs> but that's short stories for you johnny sons goodbye again yep. i love that um patrick Redden keith's empire of pain 
Like you talk about a ma- master mm-hmm. narrative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, that guy is just. I read uh, "Say Nothing" over the pandemic, and I was like, "How on earth did he do this?" And I was like, "There's no way he can do that again." <laughs> and then I read "Empire Pain." And I was like, "Damn, he did it again." Um, yeah. I, so those are some of the books that I've been reading. Um, reading lately, uh, Safia El Hilo's "Home Is Not a Country," also, yeah. which is a amazing YA book in verse, um, mm-hmm. and she's a, she's a dear friend. Um, yeah, just there's there's some really talented. <laughs> They're just some really talented writers in the world. Uh, and there's never enough time to read everybody. Well, it's a good moment to be in books, I'll tell you. It's a really good moment to be in books. We covered a lot of ground. Is there anything that we missed that you want readers to know about how the word has passed? I think like any book, it is a book that is made possible by community. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book would not be possible without the academic historians um, who who go into the archives, without the public historians who who tell these stories in in the sun and, and on the land without the teachers, without the activists, without the artists, without the sort of educators, without this ecosystem of people who were so generous in spending and mm-hmm. sharing their their stories with me. Um, and I and I hope I did them justice. Uh, and then, you know, also shout out to my wife, who we have two small kids. Um, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And so like, I have no conception of what it means to be a father without also being a father trying to write a book and because I started writing this book at the same time in the same month my my first uh, child was born and so you know my wife has been you know just a bedrock and and this would have been possible without impossible without her and and you know when I said I'm honey I'm gonna go uh spend the day with the sons of confederate veterans she uh she let me go she was and she was like you have to take your white friend and she was like you gotta take Got to take William, and so uh, she wouldn't let me go alone, understandably. But um, but she she believed in the vision of this book, and and mm-hmm. I'm I'm grateful. And so many, you know, so many people yeah. have their hands on this. I love the Alfred Lord Tennyson line from Ulysses: um, "I am a part of all that I have met," and and I feel that in my bones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that who I am and and what makes this book possible is because of people and conversation and moments um, that have shaped me. And and I think that's. That's the cool thing about any book is it's a it's a reflection of not only the person who wrote it but also all the people who um, made that person who they are. Poured Over is a Barnes and Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.